You're listening to 103.5 FM WNHH Community Radio in New Haven, Connecticut. This is The Table Underground, and I'm your host, Tegan Engel. We're digging into stories of food, radical love, and creative social justice. Ariana Yun can often be found with glass jars filled with honey clinking around in her bag. She's on a mission to get people tasting this liquid gold harvested from the Gera forest in Ethiopia. This honey is the foundation of her new business, Marisa, which means she comes with honey in Amharic. These single origin raw honeys take the same approach to supporting farmers, the environment, and food that long ago hit the worlds of coffee, chocolate, and wine. Originally from Hong Kong, Ariana landed in the US for college and later in Ethiopia, working for a global company. She fell in love with the world of agriculture there and stayed on for nearly three years, living and learning with forest farmers. Honey, she soon discovered, is a massive global commodity, and Ethiopia is the fifth largest producer in the world. The range of flavors harvested from the forest hives were unlike anything she'd ever tasted, and she realized there was an untapped market for specialty honeys that could also support farmers and a forest-based economy in Ethiopia. Starting an international honey exporting business with a social mission means that you're bound to hit more than a few bumps in the road. In this episode, Ariana shares some of the challenges and successes of starting Marisa, and we get to taste some amazing honey in the process. Ariana, thanks for making time to meet with me. Thanks, Tegan. So I see you sitting here with all this beautiful shades of brown honeys in front of you. And before we get into your whole journey of what brought you to this moment, I'd love for you to share what is it that made you fall in love with honey? My love for honey is pretty linked to my passion for coffee. Um, at the time of getting into honey, I was really into single origin hun- um, single origin coffees and also experiencing coffee through different methods of brewing and um, tasting. And um, at the time, I was also living in Ethiopia doing consulting work for an NGO called TechnoServe and was specifically working with coffee farmers on improving their coffee production. Um, and at that time, I was um, spending a lot of time with farmers who were also producing honey on the side and realized that honey, just like coffee, can be very distinct, if not even more distinctive based off of understanding where that where that honey came from, which flowers they came from, which regions. Um, and so very much inspired by um, what single origin has done for industries like coffee and wine and champagne. I just felt like it was such an overlooked and underappreciated distinction that we could make um, for honey. And I think something that made me want to pursue um, the honey sector is this passion to also decommoditize what I think has been um, a super commoditized product in the world. And it not only takes away from the the experiences that we could have with a really high quality set of products, but um, also has a lot of social impact. Mm hmm. Yeah, I think honey has become, there's such a focus on local honey because of pollens and because of the kind of awareness of buying locally. But I think that this approach you have to looking at um, where is the honey being grown and and kind of how are you supporting economies in other countries that are sustainable and, and support people's lives and the ecosystems that where they live as well as national economies that need support is is like a whole approach to honey that that hasn't really happened very much. Mm-hmm. Um can you share how, so you are from Hong Kong originally, yes. mm-hmm. and how did you end up in Ethiopia? 
Um, so I grew up in Hong Kong, came to the U.S. when I was 18 for college. Um, after college, um, was working in management consulting for a couple of years, um, serving clients in the nonprofit, public, and also private sectors. Um, but something happened, I think, around two years in where I was really itching for something different. Wasn't sure what that is, but also had a growing interest in emerging markets um, and also pursuing something that could be more mission aligned. And so um, found an NGO called TechnoServe, who had this genius program of taking consultants and bankers and other business professionals to work on pro bono projects for them and um, kind of enlisted myself in that program and um, was ultimately matched with Ethiop- a project in their Ethiopia country office. And so January 2015, um, kind of jumped on a plane to Ethiopia, read a Lonely Planet guidebook on the plane um, and just started, kind of got thrown into the agriculture work that TechnoServe was doing. Um, yeah, so originally was just supposed to be in Ethiopia for five months before returning back to my firm, um, but fell in love with agriculture um, and just could not stop learning more. And I think one of the things that really drew me into the agriculture sector was just um, the scale at which it impacts and penetrates all of our lives. So obviously we all consume food, but on top of that, a majority of the world um, still makes their livelihood off of the agriculture sector. And so I just wanted to be a part of that. Mm. And so that's what made you fall in love with it, just kind of this this new worldview of Mm-hmm. of how it was yeah and just like this the scale of which it touched people's lives mm-hmm. so um you ended up leaving your firm and staying there for how many years um almost three years okay and what were you doing in that time that you were there so i basically served as an in-house consultant for TechnoServe. um so they would work with me or they would have me work on various projects based off of their needs so couple of examples of projects. Um, So, you know, Nespresso wanted to be able to um, source sustainably processed coffee, um, but Nespresso wouldn't necessarily have the manpower to be at the field level and work with farmers. And so something that TechnoServe would do would be to design and implement um, the building or strengthening of these supply chains. Um, Another example is um, our work with Diageo. So when Diageo came into the country, um, they knew that they... What is Diageo? So Diageo is a beverages company. They were setting up um, a a beer facility and brand, but they needed to find someone like TechnoServe who knew how to build supply chains from scratch. Um, So what I would do with them is help strengthen these programs in any capacity that they needed, whether it was to help design programs or um, recruit teams or um, do feasibility analyses or performance evaluations. Um, and it was really a project that I worked on with the Swedish government. Um, that's what led to my agroforestry work to date. Um, so what we were doing with the Swedish government was um, looking at a forested area that they were trying to get UNESCO biosphere reserve status of. But in order to do that responsibly, they wanted to understand why was deforestation happening and what were the future risks of deforestation. And so deforestation is very contextual based off of the area. But in this particular forest um, which is similar to other forests in Ethiopia, they, um, r- I guess what they discovered was that deforestation was largely happening due to the communities who were clearing the land for timber or traditional agriculture. And so I worked with them specifically on a strategy of how we could combat deforestation through I- increasing incomes of the forest-based communities on non-timber forest products. And so 
couple of examples of those are um, forest-based spices, forest-based coffee, honey. Um, and that's really when I started to dig into honey in Ethiopia and um, honey generally and what were like the bottlenecks in strengthening um, the honey sector. Yeah. So it's so interesting when we say things like supply change and, and you know, developing systems and programs. It's very... Um, it sounds very technical and it doesn't sound very human, right? And so I would love to hear because the the root of how those things work is the people on the ground, right? And the forest and the land and the communities and the economies that, that they're like, if people feel like the only way they can make money is to chop down a tree and sell timber, then they do that. And how do you work with people to then say, well, you could also you know, grow spices and harvest them. And how do you get them? How do you find a buyer for those spices? Or you could harvest honey and do people know how to do that and find a market? So I'm wondering if you could talk about what that work looks like on a human level, like on the ground. So how did you start working with farmers? Um, How did you meet some of the farmers? Kind of what were they doing? How did you start building these relationships and these networks with farmers to... Mm -hmm start harvesting honey sure so i should probably share that marisa our honey brand um, is actually linked to a greater venture called forested foods um and the genesis of forested foods actually really links back to um, an opportunity to kind of work with people and their incentives and their interests so um while i was working on the swedish government project with technoserve um I was interviewing farmers and truckers and traders and exporters and the government um, and also buyers. And it just became very clear that everyone had these very distinct um, vocalized needs that they wanted that just weren't being met. So, for example, you know, farmers wanted access to more markets, um, higher paying markets, but generally just access to markets. Um, Traders wanted um, more consistent or greater supplies of product. Um, Exporters also wanted the same and also wanted market access and buyers wanted more traceability into supply chains to make sure that they could cater to their requirements. Um, And the government just really wanted um, more partners that were legitimate trying to fuel economic growth in partnership with them. And so um, while kind of interviewing all these different stakeholders in the ecosystem, I just felt like there was a market player missing who could align the incentives of all these players in the ecosystem um, in a way that was profitable, but that the byproduct of that business model would be social in the sense that we were buying, I mean, building both more equitable supply chains for everyone involved, but also could be combating deforestation along the way. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's really the the origins of forested foods. Um, and I would say back to your question about it being human, the yeah, the, the real the real foundation and inspiration for forested foods was to build a business model that could align incentives of humans. Um, and since uh, starting to build the first supply chain with honey, I think it's been reinforced over and over again that the only way to really win in business is is really to understand who you're working with what motivates them, what drives them, not just today, but even a month from now or a year from now or or their future aspirations. And if you don't align with what people want, both now and in the long term, you're never going to be able to 
build um, relationships that will ultimately help build a business. Mm -hmm. I know that um, one of the things you tried to do or trying to do with your honey business is to also support women farmers. And can you talk a little bit like part of why I'm interested in talking to you is because you're really at this beginning stage. And I think it's so interesting, all of the things that you're trying and the learnings you're having about what's working and what's not working, both on the ground and in the kind of importing sales, like all the levels of what it is to build an international business. Can you talk a little bit about some of the things you've tried and what's worked and what hasn't worked with Mm -hmm. working with women farmers? Definitely. Um, One of the inspirations for Marisa, um, our honey brand, was to support women. So Marisa in Amharic um, directly translates into she comes with honey. Um, Honey in particular has a really interesting opportunity to empower women. Um, We we can go through that later. Um, No, tell us why. Why does it have a particular ability? So um, in places like Ethiopia, especially in the farming communities, um, women are so strapped for time. They're very, very busy with the household activities. And so if we can work with women, train them um, to use kind of the modern box hives that most of us in the U.S. are familiar with seeing. They could actually manage their apiary sites and their hives closer to the home. Um, It's also not as labor intensive or time intensive as traditional like field crops. Um, And so once a woman has set up her hive, she just needs to check up on it a few times between when she sets it up and harvest the honey. Um, But proximity to the home is key. Um, so while working with women has been a really strong interest and, and something that we're definitely going to pursue, I've definitely had my challenges and um, kind of example of when I've felt how it would actually be really difficult is when I did my first, um, when we hosted our first training for our first cohort of 16 farmers back in January of this year, um, I had this dream of training a bunch of women, um, but due to kind of short planning runway um, was not able to enroll as many women as I wanted. Um, So I think we, we had invited, I think five of the 16 farmers were supposed to be women. Um, But when training started, only one woman showed up and the rest of them sent their husbands. And on the second day that one woman sent her husband instead. And so we ended up training 16 men. Um, And to be honest, the men were phenomenal and so energetic and really eager to learn. And so I appreciated them. Um, But it kind of helped me check myself and realize that realizing that like, yes, we want to empower women. But, you know, if, if there's a way to kind of, you know, build these sustainable and more equitable supply chains through through men first, that that's okay. It just means that we need to be more diligent and thoughtful about you know, why aren't women coming? What are really their bottlenecks and engaging more in the economy? And so that's definitely something we're actively still trying to understand. Right. Um, yeah. Can you talk a little bit about um, what you were training people in? Because this is their land and their country, right? And I would assume some of them have experience um, keeping bees and, and harvesting honey. So were you literally teaching people how to do this who hadn't done it or was it something in particular that you needed to do in order to be able to harvest honey in a way that is then approved for sale on a global market? Kind of what can you talk about? What is the training and also what is the wisdom that they hold in that community? Yeah. Um, so for our trainings, we partnered with the Ethiopian government's Huleta Bee Research Center. 
Um, and for each cohort, we host a five-day boot camp. Um, so of these farmers, I would say about half of them um, are very well-practiced in beekeeping, but on traditional methods, which I can all explain. And then the other half of them um, were kind of newcomers to this, maybe have been beekeeping for just just a few years. Um, and so um, I have... So most of the beekeepers in this area and actually in Ethiopia are producing honey based off of traditional methods. So for them, traditional means um, taking local materials, wood and logs, um, and and bringing these these uh, local traditional hives like 20, 30 meters even up high in trees and hanging them on trees. And um, this is kind of their local practice, um, mostly because they haven't had access to modern box hives and uh, so they're going to hang a log kind of up in the tree which is where flowers are blooming and bees are up there and then the bees are going to build a hive inside of that log and then later they would take the log down and harvest the honey exactly um and so while i really um kind of like love these traditional practices and where they come from it does have implications for the quality standards um and, and not being able to meet them so when the farmers put the hives up in the trees, they're not able to manage them as well. First of all, it, they're deep in the forest and then on top of that, high up in a tree. And so they're not able to access these these hives to check whether or not it's ripe for harvest as easily as they would a, a modern box hive. Um, so I'm not necessarily um, pressuring or um, kind of pushing the farmers to use modern modern hives just yet. We're trying to figure out how we can work with the local practices to um, make it so that they can access the materials easier, but also check on them. Um, but I would say that we are trying to figure out how to, how to work with existing systems, but to improve quality within them before um, they transition to modern hives. Mm. But um, something that's been, that's been interesting is a lot of the farmers that I've spoken with they all want to transition to modern hives and one of the key reasons that they they share is because um, it's safer um they you know while they know how to climb these trees 20 meters high they would prefer not to um it just takes a lot of time and it is it is a risk um sure how how does that change the honey if the bees are coming down to the ground to build a hive versus up in the trees does it change um, what kind of pollen's being collected or mm-hmm. which kind of bees would go there? Mm-hmm. Um, so hanging the hives high in trees, I think is less for the bees and more for the communities. Um, so I'm not sure if you've heard of the term like African bees or the implications for that, but um, bees from the African continent are known to be more aggressive and so what's kind of different about beekeeping on the African continent versus in Europe or the U.S. is that a lot of beekeeping activities actually happen at night in places like Ethiopia. Um, and apiary sites are set high in trees also as a way to kind of um, keep the community members safe. So something that we'll need to look into as more of our farmers bring their apiary sites lower to the ground, closer to the farm level, um, is how that affects communities um, we do have a lot of farmers who who have kind of ground-based apiary sites, but one of the reasons that they they've traditionally hung them deep in forests, high in trees, 
um, is to better protect community members. Um, but in terms of being deep in forest, high in trees, it, it also helps improve the quality and um, kind of volumes that bees can produce because bees are able to feed off of the, the rich and vibrant natural forests, um, which helps them produce more honey. Yeah, and really diversified honey, too, because yeah. you're getting all the different flowers that are there, not only yeah. one variety. So um, has that been a real challenge when you're encouraging women to have hives closer to their homes, which means mm-hmm. their children are closer by? Um, is there some middle ground that you're working on of kind of hives in the forest but on the ground or closer to the forest mm-hmm. and on the ground? So one thing that we do with our farmers when we first enlist them is we um, collect some information like where their home is, but also where their field is. Um, And we're working with the trainers who are beekeeping and honey production experts to help advise us on where apiary sites should be established. Um, And there are kind of seven factors that go into what makes a good apiary site. So one is like available forage. Another one is it shouldn't be close to schools or homes. Um, and so we'll we'll probably need to start working with farmers who could also have access to areas that are further away from communities. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about, um, you know, something that's special about this is that you are working within the continent of Africa, within the country of Ethiopia. And um, typically, many countries in Africa have just been exploited for humans taken through into the slave trade and for oil and for like, you know, mining diamonds, like all these different natural resources. Um, why does it feel particularly important to you to be supporting um, this crop and this economy mm-hmm. in terms of like all the places in the world that you could be working? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, having lived in Ethiopia for almost three years and it kind of being the, the one place that I've really dived into the agriculture economy, it doesn't feel like I could, I guess if, if I were to work somewhere else, I'd have to learn all this knowledge and build a network from scratch again. But I think Ethiopia has a special place in my heart, not just because it's where I fell in love with agriculture, but um, because for honey, it's, it's actually the the 10th largest producer of honey in the world, even on these traditional methods that mm. produce arguably you know, three to five times less than on modern hives. Um, and it is by far and large the largest producer of honey on the on the African continent. Um, and so I think it almost felt like I was at the right place at the right time in the right country um, working on honey. Mm. So I have so many more questions to ask you, but I want to <laughs> try your honeys that are here. Can you, you have yeah. a kind of a going from lightest to darkest or darkest to lightest, these four varieties of honey. Can you describe them and let's taste them? Yeah, definitely. Um, so, so the brand Marisa um, is a line of single origin honeys from Ethiopia's indigenous tree flora. Um, and the one thing I do have to say about um, how we're really leveraging local knowledge is, is really around um, the flora sources of the forest. So um, when we first start training farmers on the day on day one, the first activity that we do um, is actually to sit the farmers down in groups and we have the farmers put together a calendar um, and for them to note which flowers bloom at great volumes that um, bees and pollinators feed off of. Um, and based off of that calendar, we then figure out what are the single origin honeys that we can produce with the farmers so that we can actually create a line of these distinctive, um, these distinctive mm-hmm. honeys. So they're then going to go and harvest the hives at certain points when one set mm-hmm. of flowers has bloomed, but the next one has not yet. So yes. the pollen that's been collected is from one 
massive blooming of a certain kind yes. of flower. Yes. So which side do you want to start on, light or dark? Yeah. So we have four honeys here, and we normally start from light to dark. Okay. Um, and all of these honeys are from tree flowers, just given our interest to kind of increase the economic value of trees. So this first one, it's from a tree that's called uh, gateme, and it's a tree that farmers tend to plant in forests, um, especially for coffee shade. And so I love this one, not only because of the taste, but because I think it has a really chewy texture. Mm -hmm. And can I also taste these? Oh my goodness, of course. <laughs> um, yes. It, so first of all, it looks almost like creamed honey. Mm -hmm. It's like this light yellow, kind of very creamy. And it's, it's sweet, but not overly sweet. Mm -hmm. And it's not overly flower. Like it's very, you can taste the floral mm -hmm. floweriness of it, but it doesn't taste like too flowery. Yeah. Like I, I, mm. I describe this one as bright and floral. Um, and something that I'm trying to do is um, get a lot of feedback on the honeys so that we can actually create profiles for them. Um, yeah. So it's delicious. Yeah. One thing that we're creating is a honey tasting wheel, kind mm. of similar to <laughs> tasting wheels or charts for coffee and, yeah. and wine. And so I've gotten a couple of sommeliers to taste the honey and this is so beautiful. kind of explain what they're experiencing. Mm -hmm. Do you have a hunt? You have this honey wheel with different um, descriptions of what kinds of nuts, spice and herbs are in here. Mm -hmm. And the color profiles. So are these spices or are these kind of references to honey flavors? So these are, so my honey sensory analysis wheel, um, the large proportion of it is about flavor. So taste and aroma. Um, so as I've been having people taste the honeys, I've had them kind of describe in words or phrases how they experience it. Um, and I've categorized the, um, this kind of the flavors based off of what I've been hearing from people. The other parts of my wheel are the color, also the texture, and also the smoke process. Um, so in, in a place like Ethiopia and on the continent, I mentioned bees being a bit more aggressive. Um, so farmers tend to use a, um, different methods to kind of get the bees to move out of their way while they harvest it. And so they tend to smoke it. And based off of what they smoke it with, whether it be uh, barley or husk or grains or dung or grass, it, it definitely has an effect on the flavor. And so mm. I'm working with the farmers to kind of retain their cultural practices um, and see how we can actually distinguish between the profiles based off of that process. Yeah. Okay. So tell me about this second honey. Yeah. Um, this, so this is sort of like a slightly bit darker than the mm -hmm. than the golden one. Yeah. So so this one is from a tree called Basana, and this tree actually wow. blooms right after the Gateme one. Um, so this honey is actually being served at uh, DC's first and only three Michelin star restaurant right now, um, the Inn at Little Washington. Um, and what's interesting about this one is that. On one of our farmer's land, it only blooms kind of in volumes like once every three years. So that's what we're trying to explore wow. whether or not he'd be able to produce this every year. But um, you might get a little bit of an alcohol kick. Um, I don't know. if Did you taste it that? It is such a strong flavored honey, like in a wonderful way, not not in a heavy strong, but like mm -hmm. it has like a citrusy taste to it. 
Yeah. What would you describe? It's very distinctive. Like I would never put this in a cup of tea or something. Yeah. It's kind of something you really want to taste the flavor of the honey. Yeah. How do you describe this one? I So when it first got harvested wow. at the farmer's house, I was like, wow, this smells, it's super fragrant. And it almost smelled like perf- smells like perfume. Yeah. Um, but after tasting it, once it's kind of settled a bit, I actually taste roses. Mm-hmm. Um, I can see that. But yeah. it's, got a, it's got a bit of a sour kick because it started to ferment. It's um. delicious. I love the sour <laughs> sourness of it. Yeah. It's fermenting just because it's been sitting mm-hmm. in a bottle for a while. So um, all the honeys that I'm working with are raw. And based off of the moisture content that it's harvested at, mm-hmm. um, that affects how quickly it will ferment. So um, I'm sure you, you might have heard that honey is one of these products that never, go, never goes bad, which is true. You can eat honey like thousands mm-hmm. of years later. Um, but it, if it is raw honey, it can, it can slightly change in like taste and texture, um, based off of the moisture content and conditions it was harvested in. Mm. So this, this honey lives in kind of like a, um, or I guess it's harvested right before the rainy season. So naturally it tends to have a higher moisture content. Um, but I've tasted it in its, um, fresh state and also it's semi-fermented state and I like love them both for different reasons it's amazing does that have a name um so this tree is called basana basana okay Mm -hmm. um this third honey um is actually largely from coffee trees Mm. um, which we were super excited to find out because um trying to produce coffee honey is is really difficult um coffee coffee trees only flower for about a week to 10 days before Mm -hmm. the flowers kind of die and it becomes like the coffee cherry fruit um and so based off of like i think european standards if you've got like 25 percent pollen count coffee you can call it coffee but um this honey is actually almost 50 percent coffee coffee tree flora wow so this one looks very much like a a light color caramel Mm mm-hmm it's a little bit crystallized. It tastes really smoky mm-hmm. to me, but like very, it smells and tastes very earthy. Mm-hmm. So one of the reasons why this honey is so smoky is because of the farmer's smoking practices. Um, so wow. they used a mix of dung and also grass. Um, and one thing I, I am, I'm very transparent about the process. <laughs> um, and it's always really interesting to get people's reactions when they find out what it's been smoked with. Well, sure. Yeah. yeah. So have you tasted this honey when it doesn't have such an added smokiness to it? And, I have. Yeah. And what's the difference? Because I, I mean, I love the idea that it's a, a honey from coffee flowers. Yeah. But I feel like the smokiness is is very strong. strong. Totally. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so besides the kind of smoky layer... Um, for me, I, I feel like it tastes like kind of like fresh sawed wood and a mm-hmm. bit of chrysanthemum. Um, <laughs> and yeah, um, it does have a, um, when you smell it, yeah. it has kind of a wood smell. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And what about this darkest one that you have here? Um, so this darkest one, oh, sorry. The one thing I was going to say about coffee yeah. trees is I don't know if you've ever smelled a coffee tree when it's in bloom, but it actually smells like jasmine. Hmm. Yeah. And so when I, when we first harvested, um, this coffee honey, I was curious to see if it would taste like jasmine at all, but it doesn't. No. Okay. Um, so this last honey, the darkest honey, it's from a tree called Grawa. Um, and 
well, I'll, I'll let you try it and we can talk about the taste. But um, this tree is known locally by communities to have a lot of medicinal properties. Mm-hmm. Um, so when people have stomach aches um, or they think they have kind of parasites, they'll they'll have this. And monkeys have been um, found to actually come eat this honey when they're sick. Hmm. Well, it's a very strong flavored honey, yeah. which I find usually with darker honeys that they mm-hmm. have a, a very strong mm-hmm. Like I've tried buckwheat honey and other ones yes. that are very dark. Yeah. This so. kind of actually reminds me of buckwheat honey. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it, it tastes kind of a little bitter, like burnt molasses. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's good. Wow, it's so distinctive, the flavors of each mm-hmm. of the honeys. And I had never really been aware of how a smoke the smoking practice of mm-hmm. getting the bees out would affect the honey so mm-hmm. much. But I guess if there's so much smoke being put into the hive then it makes sense and mm-hmm. so maybe there's like varying degrees yeah of how much smoke uh, is needed to clear the bees away from a hive yeah yeah definitely mm. so thank you for um letting me taste all of these when you have um brought these to restaurants to to try to start creating a market like mm-hmm. you're you're mm-hmm. helping farmers have support in how to mm-hmm. harvest and collect the honey then you have to have somebody to sell it to, right? Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. um, where what are people saying when you're bringing this to restaurants and mm-hmm. how could they use these kinds of honeys? Mm-hmm. Um, so what's interesting is restaurants have said that they prefer different types. Um, and obviously this links back to how they imagine using it. Um, so for the restaurants that um, are looking or, or interested in using it for, for say like a cheese board, they've tend to like the smokier, bitter ones, um, for restaurants that are inspired by using it in pastries or desserts or breakfast or tea spreads, they tend to like the more floral ones. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm, as I talk to each restaurant and kind of like culinary team, I'm trying to get us get a better understanding of what are the most probable use cases for the honey, mm-hmm. and then hopefully be able to better target food service clients based off of that yeah yeah there's a lot more to talk about there but I I wanted to actually just ask you a little bit about why is it important that this honey is coming from a forest like why are you trying Mm -hmm. to to support um, growing things in the forest so people can understand we often think of like a beehive Mm -hmm. in a field Mm -hmm. and and why is it important to be supporting forest Mm -hmm. agriculture based in forests Mm -hmm. Um, so from uh, ecological perspective Um, it's really important to support pollinators in forested areas so they can help keep a forest vibrant. Um, But kind of from a product quality perspective, um, honey coming from natural forests means that bees are pollinating um, natural kind of virgin land. And so they actually are able to produce a product that's much cleaner, um, that's kind of free from pesticides and other agrochemicals. Um, from a kind of social perspective, um, we have a ton of people in the world who directly and indirectly rely on forest-based resources and also just living in vibrant forests. Um, so what I like about forest-based honey is there's kind of like a social impact and ecological impact, um, but also um, an opportunity to, to produce a much more premium, um, high caliber product. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So um, you had to go from... Um, you know, we jumped into briefly talking about the restaurants, but can you talk a little bit about how did you even get the honey from Ethiopia to America mm. and what were some of the barriers? Through a lot of help, 
across the supply chain. Um, so I launched the Marisa brand um, May of last year. So it's almost been a year. Um, and I, to kind of prove the model, I set my kind of proof of concept around um, sourcing, filtering, and exporting a thousand kilos of honey and then importing that into the US um, and then marketing it. So um, to source the honey, what I did was I went back to forested areas that um, I had worked in before with TechnoServe. So there were two forests in particular that I went to. Um, I, I had contacts on the ground like farmers and um, farmer union managers. Um, and one of the forests um, TechnoServe was actually still active in. Um, so went to those two particular forests to source the varieties of honey that I wanted. Um, and these were also two forests that I plan to continue working in in the future to train more farmers and build up more of a network. And then in terms of exporting out of the country, um, I got a lot of support from uh, another female honey entrepreneur um, who actually had a processing facility and all the right licenses. So she was just like an incredible catalytic um, mentor and supporter and helping me um, actually export that first one ton out of the country. Mm. Um, and then coming back onto the market side, um, my first buyer, which is a specialty honey store in Boston called Follow the Honey, um, they the 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 co-founders owners of um, that shop also were so helpful in in helping me understand the import process and how do I just like get it out of Newark cargo airport yeah what happened there um so that was a lot more challenging than i expected it to be um i i think it all started with me just trying to figure out how i knew when the shipment was coming in and how to get it from newark back to new haven where i am um and kind of with the guidance of of uh brian and mary at follow the honey they advised me that the best way would just be to kind of get a u-haul go to newark and collect it and um so was fortunate enough to have help um, drive me there. And once we got to the Newark cargo services, um, found out that I was getting hit with like a 4,000 plus fee um, for keeping the honey at the port for a little too long. So it was like $1,000 per day. Um, so wasn't expecting that also the, oh my God. yeah, <laughs> it, it was just a lot of, a lot of miscommunication between my import broker, um, the freight forwarder from Ethiopia, the Newark cargo services. Um, and so I think after like two hours or so, just phone calling all the people that were involved in the shipment, um, the Newark cargo services manager was like, I'm waving the feed, get out. Mm. <laughs> um, yeah. So, so kind of went to the, the warehousing, um, and was so happy to see the honey, but unfortunately it was, it, it was a bit damaged. Um, it kind of looked like someone had thrown a piano on them. So um, they were in, were they in five gallon buckets? Yeah. So, so the honey was transported in, um, 45 gallon buckets that I had purchased from Home Depot. Um, and, and sent to Ethiopia. Yeah. So brought them to Ethiopia, filled them with honey, and then we kind of shipped them back on Ethiopian wow. Airlines cargo, um, picked those up. Thankfully, I only lost one of 40 of the buckets, but definitely a learning curve, just understanding like what are the risks when you're shipping, um, how to kind of manage like insurance and um, even potentially how we, we might want to do it in the future. Mm. Like I was even thinking like maybe like rounded square sized buckets would travel better than like the, the circular ones. Yeah. 
Were yeah. you able to find out why that happened or they just were like, here's your damaged honey? I wasn't. I mean, I think at that point we'd also spent like several hours at Newark Ergo Cargo Services and we're pretty, pretty eager to get back and kind of put it in storage because someone was waiting for me on the New Haven side of things. Yeah. Wow. So um, now you're at the point of having all this honey and trying to get it out into the market. What are some of the ways that you're trying to do that? Mm-hmm. Um, so one key learning on the marketing side was that... Um, was kind of a shift from focusing purely on getting it into retail stores and actually focusing more on partnering with food service or restaurants. Um, so right now the, the honey is being retailed at follow the honey on Harvard square. Um, but I've shifted a lot of my efforts to partnering with the right restaurants who I feel like have a platform where their customer base knows that they care a lot about where they source from supporting sustainable ecosystems and also just creating like ingenious dishes and menus. Mm -hmm. Um, And so given that I've been um, conducting honey tastings with culinary teams at um, Michelin star restaurants like 11 Madison park in New York and the modern um, and also in DC at the inn at little Washington, which is their three Michelin star restaurant, as well as uh, another restaurant called mini bar by Jose Andreas with two stars not to say that I, I'm not interested in working with other restaurants that aren't Michelin stars, but it was just kind of like where I knew people or where I thought restaurants and culinary teams would care about what I also cared about. Mm-hmm. And is some of like, you know, this is a fairly high price point, honey. Mm-hmm. Is is that price point high because you are turning around and paying the farmers what it's actually worth and cost for them to grow the honey versus mm-hmm. like at a commodity pricing, which is like, kind of usually exploiting the farmers and the the industry mm-hmm. um so it's for a mix of reasons so one reason um is that you know when you're piloting something and you're such a small scale your costs are higher um, we also are paying the farmers a premium so right now what we do is um we pay them uh 10 or 15 percent premium based off of the quality the quality metrics that we've set with them and we're still trying to figure out what our model is um, for paying farmers, um, we're, we'll, we'll definitely always be paying farmers a premium, but one risk that we've actually run into is actually negatively skewing the local market. Um, so we're, we're obviously not the only honey buyer in town in these forests. And, um, we're trying to figure out how to pay farmers more, um, while also not kind of destroying the businesses of other buyers of honey. Mm. Um, so that's kind of, TBD and we'll keep you posted on how that goes yeah so how is that manifesting like if are farmers then not selling to other people because they want to get a higher price by selling to you yeah so um, we actually just got feedback from a farmer a few days ago that they've stopped working with their local trader because they want to work with us Um, and and a key driver of that is because we're paying them more money Um, so we absolutely want to pay farmers more money but at the same time we also need to think more holistically about our business models impact on other local economies. Mm, yeah. And so in this process, um, can you talk a little bit about being a woman in, in business and how, how has, how have you, have you been received both by the farmers and by the restaurants? And these are pretty male dominated spaces that you're walking yeah. into. Also yeah. the, the funders like the. Definitely. Yeah. Um, I, I, I'd like to contextualize my response by saying that I I realize now that I grew up in a very privileged environment where I didn't have to think a lot about my 
my gender and how that affected the way I was perceived or what I could achieve. I think the first time I really started to feel my gender was when I moved to Ethiopia in 2015. Um, and since then have just becoming more and more aware of my gender and how I'm coming off and how people receive me and actually also how to, to leverage different aspects. Um, so I would say um, being in Ethiopia, um, I've been very fortunate to have kind of worked on my presence and the way I interact with um, the TechnoServe community who is largely local Ethiopians. Um, I would say that it's it's really important to understand culture as much as you can to then figure out how to act. And something interesting about Ethiopian culture is it actually kind of reminds me of my East Asian heritage. So, um, you know, there's a deep respect for for hierarchy and um, knowing that I think I always conduct myself in a way that I'm first and foremost being respectful of who I'm communicating with and making sure that they feel like they're heard and seen. Um, and I think Ethiopia has um, a lot of... Th- a lot of kind of deep relationships with East Asian countries. Um, so the forest that I'm working in, um, JICA, which is kind of like uh, Japanese USAID, has has a, has had like a long-standing presence there. Um, and um, there's tons of Chinese businesses. So in some ways, having kind of a, a Chinese space, I think, has helped me um, build trust at the offset that I'm here to do business and partner with them. Um, but at the same time, um, there is is still a respect for um, American businesses. And so I think kind of being halfway between East Asia and, and America has kind of helped me set the tone that I want. But I think at the end of the day, it comes down to just a mutual respect for someone as like a person more than like where they come from. Yeah, absolutely. Have there been any particular challenges that you felt as a woman in business? Um, yeah, I think... I would say I have a pretty adventurous spirit, but I do realize that there are certain things that I can't do. Um, So for example, um, it wouldn't be wise for me to be traveling solo or at night. Um, There was this one time where um, our car had broken down from um, this, this one town to the forest. And um, thankfully I was with, um, an old colleague of mine who lived in the forest at that point and we hitchhike on a motorbike to the farmers. But when I was trying to find my way from the forest back to the main town, um, I found myself like surrounded by a a bunch of men because unfortunately the women in that community were all at home. Um, and it was, it was, um, facing, um, kind of dusk. And I, I realized that I needed to get back to the main town. And I think at that point I felt, unfortunately like pretty unsafe and and I was just wondering um you know if if I were male if if I could have not not put up a fight but kind of been more confident about like reasoning with the people that were surrounding me about how I could get like a reasonably priced fare to get back from to get back to the town from the forest Mm. um so I think that's an instance where I've kind of like felt my gender at play and kind of like what my limitations were um, but at the same time, I would say that um, because I'm a woman and because I'm visibly young, when I work hard and do hard labor, I think a lot of um, the local people have been actually really impressed. Um, so I would say like that's when it kind of works in my favor where they 
they might expect less of me. So when I surpass their expectations, um, that that generates a lot of respect. Mm, yeah. And have there been limitations with the um, like people who are funders or buyers where they're maybe not taking you as seriously or, or other things that have come into play around gender? Yeah. I've found that um, people on the market side, specifically um, in the kind of like the, the buying side, have been super supportive of me. Um, and I do think that there is this fantastic trend of like supporting female entrepreneurs um, and social entrepreneurs that I've been able to um, kind of piggyback off, which I really appreciate. Um, the The funding world is it's very new for me. I'm, I'm kind of starting to have conversations with investors and whatnot. But I think the the limitations that I felt have largely been um, of from me and realizing that a lot of the funders I'm talking to are used to speaking with very confident um, kind of achievement oriented communicators. And I think part of me being a woman and also kind of growing up with like my East Asian heritage, it all affects the way I communicate and come off. And I definitely have felt like there have been limitations to uh, my ability to impress people or feel like I'm investment ready because of that. And so it's something that I'm actively working on. Yeah. We've talked about this a little bit and how um, I think like the level of groundwork and knowledge you have mm-hmm. far surpasses so many people who are starting businesses. Mm-hmm. And so like how um, sometimes people who are men are more comfortable just kind of going in and saying, right. I know everything. You should just fund me. I have this great product. And right. that like you're you're trying to be very honest and transparent about the things that are working and the mm-hmm. things that aren't working and what a different approach that is and challenge that is right. and, and kind of learning that that yeah. world of funding. Um, one of my one of my professors who is a seasoned angel investor um, was, you know, we were talking about when male and female founders approach her and she's like, you know, male founders, they come and they're like, I've done this. I've done this. This is what our model achieves. And uh, women founders tend to be like, I'm in the process of building this and like we're testing this in order to achieve this. And I completely resonated with that. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Well, I know we have to wrap it up, but I just want to thank you so much for for sharing your journey. And how can people um, find Maritza Honey? Um, So currently it's in a retail store in Boston called Follow the Honey around Harvard Square. And it's also being sold at um, this three Michelin star restaurant and chateau in the outskirts of D.C. called the Inn at Little Washington. But um, I will be doing a proper product launch in September. Um, so would love for people to stay tuned and follow the journey. Great. And how can they follow you? Um, so on my Instagram, I've got updates of kind of where I am, what I'm doing. And my Instagram is at Marisa Honey, M-A-R-Y-I-Z-A-H-O-N-E-Y. I've also got a website that I'm building, um, Forested Foods, so www.forestedfoods.com. Excellent. And I will put all this stuff up on the tableunderground.com along with some photos and all the links to, so people can follow you. Thank you, Tegan. Thank you, Ariana. For more info, go to thetableunderground.com. You'll find links and photos to everything we talked about in this episode, as well as other articles, recipes, and more. Follow us on all the social medias, and please leave a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tegan Engel, and this is The Table Underground. You're listening to 103.5 FM WNHH Community Radio in New Haven, Connecticut.